Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And now, let's jump right back into Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 10. While they were away, George, with the help of Henny, installed the padlock. Paul, sitting on his chair over the money, asked, Do you want me to help? Sarcastically, George replied, Since you're the treasurer and want to sit on the money so much, you'd better stay there. You don't need to be snotty about it. I'll be as snotty as I please. Henny advised Paul, Don't hatch it. George guffawed. It might be an idea, though, then we'd have more. Paul answered, You're both pretty funny. He sat there inside the clubhouse over the money. Outside, George and Henny fastened the fittings for the padlock on the door and its jam, which consisted merely of the side of the building. They had difficulty getting the screws in and finally managed to do this by starting the hose with the nail, pounded partway in, and then withdrawing it. At last accomplished, they shut the door, turned the clasp over, and put the padlock on, snapping it shut. George called in to Paul. Now you're locked in. How does it feel? asked Henny. Paul made a muffled answer they couldn't understand. George and Henny stood there enjoying the joke on Paul until they looked at each other with the same thought. Hurriedly they unlocked the door and threw it back. Paul sat on his chair. He knew exactly what they were thinking and he grinned at them. I only took a thousand dollars. Yeah, George commented. A short time later, Gracie and Joy returned with the three new keys and the original one. These were distributed so that each musketeer had one. They all went into the clubhouse and did the ritual of door closing and candle lighting, and Joey said, Let's see the box. Paul got up, brought out the box, and showed it to them. They examined its seals. Looks the same to me, said Gracie. It was well into the afternoon, and George said, We've done about enough for today. We'll bury it and lock the place up. They looked around for a spot. Oh, said George, that's decided. Who decided? asked Paul. I did. I suppose it'll be under your chair. Well, I'm the president and leader. That's where it should be. And I'm the treasurer. The treasurer of any organization has charge of the money, so it goes under mine. This is more important than that, George held. If it was only dues not amounting to much, the treasurer should hold them, but this is something else. All the difference, Paul held, is that it amounts to more. That's a pretty big difference. I want the box under my chair. It should go under mine. The others attended this sharp exchange with interest. Before this morning, there was little or no rivalry between George and Paul. In a single day, one had developed, strangely. Between them all, there seemed to have intervened a new element, making them suspect each other, altering their feeling of close comradeship and goodwill. When the argument went on and on until it appeared it would merely continue without decision and become a little boring, Gracie proposed, Let's take a vote on it. That's democratic, approved Henny. George growled, well, don't forget this is a pretty important matter. It's more a question of leadership than anything else. Don't forget I'm the treasurer, Paul reminded them. It's more important than anybody being an officer, George held. 
If anybody's treasurer, Paul argued, he should have the duties of being a treasurer. Their appeal to the voters and political speech is over, Joey said. It's got to be a secret vote. Gracie tore out sips of paper from the back of her notebook and handed them about, loaning the pencil to each of them and turn after she had marked her own ballot, each turn to mark his so that the others would not see how he voted. This time the ballots were handed to Gracie, who opened and counted them. Four votes for the money box to be buried under the president's chair, she reported, and one vote for it to be buried under the treasurer's. It was clear that the only vote Paul received was his own cast for himself. George's eyes blazed at him in triumph. Paul accepted his defeat with good, if silent, grace. George kicked his chair aside, and Henny took up the shovel and started to dig. He stopped when he had a hole about a foot deep, large enough to hold the money box. They looked at this and decided it wasn't far enough down. George took the shovel and dug some more. Finally, it was deemed sufficient. The box was lowered reverently into the hole and then covered up. The flat back of the shovel was pounded on the loose dirt to pack it in and give no evidence of anything having been buried there. Then George's chair was placed over it. They looked at the result with satisfaction. There's just one more thing, George said. We all got to take a blood oath never to tell anybody about this. Blood? said Joey in alarm. It won't be real blood, George assured him. That's too square, but you'll have to think of it as being just as good as blood. All right, give it, said Gracie. Raise your right hands, George instructed. They raised their right hands. George tried to find the words, but didn't seem able to start. Go ahead, Paul challenged. George extemporized, and they repeated after him. I do solemnly swear, by my blood and all that is holy within me, to keep secret to keep the secret that lies buried in the clubhouse of the five musketeers. I won't tell anybody about this. I mean not anybody, including my parents, and I won't tell Mr. McGill or anybody else ever on pain of death. So help me God, I swear. Joey had blanched toward the last of the oath. Now he asked timorously, Did you mean that about death? I sure did. George informed him, and you swore to it, so you'd better keep to it. Joey gulped. I will. How about you taking the oath? asked Paul of George. Me? You gave it to us, but you didn't take it yourself. The others concurred. Paul's right. You'd better. Go ahead. Who's going to give it to me? You just say, Paul instructed, you swear to all the things you made us swear to, and raise your hand. George raised his hand and said solemnly, I do. He lowered his hand. You didn't say, All right, I swear. Keep your hand raised. All right, I said. George was petulant. I swear to all the things I made you swear to. That'll do, I guess. George glared at Paul. Then let's call it a day. We haven't decided one thing, Gracie said. Henny asked her what? "'About coming to the clubhouse. "'I mean, do any of us come any time we want? "'I mean, with the box here and all?' "'I guess that's a point.' "'George looked chagrined that he had not thought of this. "'And I guess we can't let it go that way. "'We'd better not come unless all of us are here.' "'That'd be best,' said Joey. 
Maybe it wouldn't, said Paul. They looked at him to elaborate. Supposing one of us goes away on a trip with his family or gets sick, he pointed out. Then none of us can use the clubhouse at all or touch what's in it. That wouldn't be so good, Henny opined. Make it four, then, said George. Even that's too many, Gracie differed. Sometimes two of us have gone away at the same time. That leave the other three not getting in. Make it three, said Paul. Not wanting Paul to get the credit for this suggestion, George spoke quickly, taking the ball away from him. That's what I was thinking. Is that okay with everybody? We don't go in the clubhouse after this unless at least three of us are here. They nodded. It's what's called a quorum, explained Paul. It's decided, George told them, taking the edge off Paul's erudition. So let's call it a day. The candle was blown out and they emerged into the late afternoon sunlight. The door was closed and the padlock put in place. George had already tried his key and knew it worked, but now Henny tried his, and the others followed suit with theirs. All worked. They looked at their sign and were again glad for the warning Gracie had put on it. Joey wanted to know, If we can't go in without three of us being here, what have we each got a key for? No one had a clear answer to that except George, and his was not very good. Well, you never can tell. They started off in the various directions of their homes in Buckingham Hills, calling goodbye and saying they would see each other in the morning at nine o'clock as usual. That evening, the corner of the hills at the northeast, the junction of Coventry Road and Oxford Road, was deserted until about seven thirty. Then one musketeer, Henny, appeared. Soon another, Paul, came. They met, exchanged the greeting, Hi, but didn't say anything else. Not long afterward, two more, Gracie and Joey, came together. The same word was exchanged all around. They stood there on the street as though drawn by an invisible force and stared at the clubhouse. Finally, George arrived from where he lived in the southeast corner of Coventry Road. He came purposefully, and looking around to see that no one else was about, he stormed at them. I could see you from my house when I went out on the street. What's the idea? Do you want to call attention to it? You know our folks haven't said anything about us being here all day as long as we get home at noon and don't come again at night. Go home, beat it, all of you, hurry up! Shamefacedly, they wandered off, and George strode back to his house, shaking his head as if to indicate that it wasn't easy to be a leader when your followers weren't quite bright. End of segment 10